on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, this is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right. We get you ready for Super Bowl 56 happening this Sunday in Los Angeles. Tenor Scott Ramsey joins us to talk about the highs and lows of singing the national anthem on the gridiron. And then listener mailbag, uh, when is an opera not an opera? Plus two-minute drill, stage director Hans Neunfels has died. You don't remember the name? Oh, you'll definitely remember his production of Wagner's Lohengrin. <laughs> if you are watching on Dallas Opera Network, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Get that full show. Stitcher, Spotify, you click follow. If you're on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. It's that easy. You can send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Like the listener mailbag today. Those folks are getting OBS beer coasters and OBS so lapel pins. <laughs> I wish I got they have those. Making it rain lapel pins. We are. We are. Oliver Camacho, great to see you. <laughs> Who, who's making it rain on the uh, ice rink out there in uh, Beijing? Well, I'm just now catching up with all the action at the Olympics. I have like all of my uh, videos uh, taped on my DVR and try to watch them. Like as I'm falling asleep at like two o'clock in the morning and watch all these routines. Uh, there's this Russian, you all know, you don't need me to tell you about it, but this Russian phenomenon, phenomenon her name uh, is escaping me right now. I wrote it down. Camila Valieva. Okay, Camila Valieva. Uh, she's 15 years old. She's like five, three or something like that. She's like a little thing. But the way NBC has been editing her, they make it seem like she's like this super villain. Like, you know, like she's just oh. like this icy, <laughs> oh. you know, exacting, like you take no prisoners, um, you know, perfectionist. Um, and like, I'm sure she's just a darling little 15-year-old girl, but just the way she's edited, like they make the Americans seem so like warm and lovable. Then she comes out and she's like, she's going to punish everybody for existing. You know? <laughs> Don't tell me the Olympics aren't political. Huh? No, but she, I mean, but she did. I mean, like yesterday in the team finals, we're recording on Monday as always. Yesterday in the team finals, like she was, I think, 20 points ahead of everybody else who skated and everybody did a great job yesterday, but like she just blew everybody out of the water. Yeah, she, she's the first person ever to perform, to land like a quad spin, yeah, and which she I don't fully understand. She but... attempted four <laughs> in her routine yeah. yesterday and landed three of them. And like, she was so mad that like, she had a little like slip up on the, the third one. But even if she didn't do that one, she still would have beat everybody. <laughs> every, every, every record, you know, yeah. it's amazing. Uh, Weston, looking at the script here, you're just your note says no peacock. I don't. Yeah, like any good millennial, I haven't watched TV in about 15 years, so I rely on uh, stolen peacock from a friend of mine to watch the Olympics, and they want to change their password, so I oh. I don't know what's happening in the Olympics, and hopefully I'll be able to. So listeners, you can password you can support the podcast as always by. <laughs> Sharing our Facebook posts or just telling everybody about you know about the show, but or you can you also, can, you can also support DM the podcast me. by sending Weston <laughs> credentials to log into Peacock. <laughs> Don't do that. He no. should be he should be punished for stealing. Something. <laughs> All right, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. 
Let's go inside the huddle. We are talking about the Super Bowl. We're getting you ready for the Super Bowl tonight. It is through gritted teeth that I invite this diehard Packers fan onto this Bears (laughs) loving show. Tenor Scott Ramsey joins us. Hey, Scott. Hi, how are you? Great to see you again. Not since 2017, I think it was. It's been a few years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Back in the day. You're alive in this surreal, bizarre world, huh? Isn't it, though? It is. <laughs> very it strange. Is. Yes, yes, it it's very is. Very strange. Um, how has it been treating you? Give us 30 seconds on operating COVID in your world. Uh, you know, it's it's been pretty decent. From the last time I saw you guys, I just started um, – uh, I started working at DePaul University for the last four years, um, teaching voice here and still singing, still going out. Um, I mean, not during COVID, you know, everything has come to a halt. <laughs> right. Um, things are picking up in the spring. Uh, this April, I have a, a bunch of uh, concerts and stuff um, and uh, and stuff like that. I actually had to just turn down a gig because um, I have stuff, which is great. Like that's a yeah. that's a that's a good thing. Um, but you know, really enjoying being here in Chicago more often and, and, and working with, uh, you know, prospective opera singers and, and young singers. It's a lot of fun. And COVID's been tough to teach in, um, but we kind of, we deal, we dealt with it pretty well. Now we're, you know, as you can see in studio and with students still wearing masks here at DePaul and, and everything. So I'm just really hoping for the day when we can get back to, you know, songs, mask and, and sing with and actually hear, hear voices again. I can't wait. Well, glad you're here. And you certainly had a show. This was at the end of December that you sang the national anthem for a Packers game on the frozen Christmas day. Wow. That, that is spectacular. Even Merry I, Christmas. Even I <laughs> right? have, have to take What a gift. <laughs> we're we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that in one second. We are focusing on, on national anthems and the Super Bowl. For me, it really all started when for Super Bowl 48, 2014, Renee mm. Fleming sang the national anthem. Mm, yeah. Do you yeah. remember that happening, Scott? I do. In fact, I was in um, I was in Portland um, at Portland Opera doing a production of um, Lucia de Lammermoor, and we had a performance that day. And I remember being in my dressing room, and and down the hall, one of my colleague who was singing Lucia was uh, Liz Futrell. And, and she was like, let me know when it's on. And I was like, it's on. So everybody like came in and we watched it on my phone, you know, and everything. And we were all like, go it. Like we were just cheering her on and everything. <laughs> it was great. I really enjoyed it. I mean, yeah. you just, you just can't go wrong with Nene. one thing about that performance that that struck you i know what mine is but i want to hear from you what was one thing that you really were uh found meaningful about that national anthem that she did i think what was meaningful for me is that it just the fact that opera was on that like national stage really and that a classical singer got a chance to sing that. I mean, I know that sounds kind of weird, but 
to have that notoriety of of having opera an opera singer do that um, nowadays is not uh, is not heard of. I mean, back in the seventies and eighties, it was you know you you had opera singers on late night TV all the time, and mm. opera was not something that was foreign. But to have someone like Renee on TV singing you know, to millions of people was a really big deal for the opera community. And whether you love her or you don't, you know, lots, everyone was behind her. You know, I love her. She's amazing. I mean, um, the company that she kept on not that stage that year, but before and afterward, Jennifer Hudson, Carrie Underwood, Christina Aguilera, Kelly Clarkson, Alicia Keys, Adina Menzel, Lady Gaga. Boy, you did your homework. <laughs> it's insane, man. <laughs> you should it's see insane. his Google search history. It's wild. It's amazing. I just remembered that the dress she wore made it look like she'd fallen into a vanilla ice cream cone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I that. that's kind of par for the course, I think, for, uh, you know, a lot of sports events. You always get the, the wildest dress, the most attention grabbing thing that that's you can. Right. And But I, I'm like, I, I want to echo uh, you, Scott, because I remember when I uh, heard it, because this is before I moved to Chicago. And, you know, Chicago is, for me, I, I came from Alabama originally. Uh, the um, amount of classical music knowledge and opera is nowhere near on the same level in Chicago. Um, and I remember Renee Fleming singing. I, d I didn't even know about it beforehand. That's how out of the loop I was. And I, I people were talking to me about, do you, like, do you know who Renee Fleming is? I'm like, yes, I do know who Renee Fleming <laughs> is. Uh, and just like, you know, uh, just it, it sparked so many conversations and people were so impressed and uh, uh, and just the media attention surrounding it. I think she went on a, uh, I want to say it was like Letterman or something around the same time. She was that on was, Letterman and yeah. she did that whole that whole mm -hmm. bit too. Scott, yeah. jumping ahead to, to Christmas then, you've sung for the pack before, but yeah. what, what made this last time different? Um, I mean, for me, uh, this is going to sound really weird, but, um, I, I had been such a, a huge fan of Aaron Rodgers, um, for such a long time, most of his career. In fact, the second time that I, that I sang, um, it, you know, it was, it was very special to me to be able to be out on, out on the field and everything. And, and, and I really wanted to be able to, you know, to get the chance to sing it um you know again um and and be able to you know do it while he was still there and you know unfortunately you know when when he got into some trouble um not really what i'm not going to get into it but you know it was it was a bummer for me you know when yeah. you hold somebody up like that and and you know i i'm i'm never going to take away what he is to the city of green bay and that's the thing that people don't if you're not from a small town like Green Bay, you don't understand what a thing it is for that town to have a Super Bowl, to have, yeah. you know, yeah, one absolutely. of the best quarterbacks in the world playing for your team. And it really means a lot. I mean, when it, when when the team wins a Super Bowl, it means the economy in Green Bay gets better. You know, they're right. able to put more money into into that thing that draws people in. And so it's really important. And so it really was a bummer. <laughs> That being said, um, Christmas Day was awesome because I get to bring some friends and family to, you know, to the game. We get to go in a skybox and everything. And I just thought, oh, this is going to be great. I just wanted to do it during the good times. You know, like I got to sing that year that we went to the Super Bowl. Wah, wah. But, <laughs> you played your part. You played yeah, your exactly. part. Yeah, exactly. 
Maybe if you'd sung a little harder, you could have gotten there. But I will say, every time that I have sung the national anthem for the Packers now three times, they have won. And in a landslide at every game. So (laughs) Amazing. I mean, they should just hire me full time, quite frankly. (laughs) For the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming and the rocket's red glare the bombs bursting in gave proof through the night that our flag was still there how does singing the anthem not just the anthem, but the anthem in those conditions on the gridiron. How does that compare to, to being on stage in, in a role? Oh God, it's so completely different. Um, because you, I mean, in a in an opera in an opera house, um, you hopefully you get some bounce back. <laughs> some you know you get to hear yourself. Lyric, you can't right. hear yeah. yourself because it's just ginormous. Um, and and it's sort of that sort of situation. Now, when I did it. Uh, this year, unfortunately, because of COVID, we weren't allowed to be out on the field. So we did it from sort of a a, uh, a deck that comes out into the into the stadium, um, and and there were a bunch of people around there, and that's where they did all of these sort of live things where they would normally do them on the field. But when you're on the field, it's incredible because there's like a almost a three second delay um Mm. and the very first time that i sang it they when they asked me to do the sound check they said um do you want to do it with a earpiece like a they didn't have monitors an in-ear monitor like they do now they just gave you literally a little piece of foam to stick in your ear and you just had to listen to yourself and i thought now i'm a professional i don't need that and I got about two stanzas in and I went, oh, give me that earpiece. I need it now. <laughs> Literally, it was so distracting. And this, the, again, it ends up getting so slow because you're listening to yourself, you know. And so I was like, give me that earpiece. So that time, you know, was a little more nerve wracking. And I don't really remember that much, quite frankly. Um, the second time and the and this last Christmas, um, they had in here in-ear um, headsets, which is much easier because then you can hear yourself really well. but being out on that on the on a platform in the middle of the field and having that entire um you know i think it was like almost 80,000 people um you know uh, you know singing along and cheering you on it's it's overwhelming it really is mm. A couple weeks ago at the AFC Championship, Ashanti was singing the national anthem, ran into some technical problems, and her mic gave out. It's the nightmare, of course. (laughs) Guess what? The crowd picks up the slack and starts singing. If if you're looking into the crowd, can you hear them? Can you really see them? What is the crowd like to you? The crowd. So this last time that I did it, we obviously I couldn't hear it that well um, because they're all behind me. Um, so I was just focused on hearing myself, and um, and usually they have the words up on the on the um, jumbotron, so you can see. And that's I've never. I mean, honestly, knock on wood, I've never forgotten the words or <laughs> screwed them up. Um, but 
you know, there, it is nice to have that up on the screen. Now they are a little delayed from when you sing them. So they're a little bit behind, you know, so if it were a, if it were a tragedy where I did forget something, if I just gave a dramatic pause, they would come up so that I could go on, you know, a little retard and to, you know, uh, uh, a fermata. Um, <laughs> <The but, land. laughs> right, exactly. But this time there was actually a TV. Um, there was like a little bar, right. Where I was literally, I was singing, at a bar at the stadium, <laughs> like there's a bar in front of me, and people are drinking. Like, that is so on. green. Yeah. Day. Well, welcome to Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so there was a TV off in the distance, and normally I'd be like, I'm not going to wear my glasses, you know, to sing. But I was like, can I have losing my glasses back so I can see this from this far? Um, so that was. It's just a like just a little safety precaution. But you know, you when you are on the field, yeah, you can hear them, and it's. It's awesome. And the fun thing about what they do in, in Lambo, usually they have a flyover. They couldn't on Christmas Day because it was Christmas Day. Um, but they have you know, pyrotechnics that that happen, you know, during certain and the rockets red glare, you know, that, sure, that yeah, and everything yeah. goes off and the crowd just goes nuts for that. And um, and so that's kind of fun to to have all that happen and hear them. Well, what is the what is the rehearsal like for uh, for the anthem? Do you just go in and just what hope it works? <laughs> no. no, you get a sound check. You get a mm. sound check. So you basically you show up and you go right to sound check and and they give you the headpiece and the earpiece and they give you a microphone and and you just do it. Now, the last time that I did it, you didn't. They never told you. They never told me like there are going to be eight hundred people on the field, like unfurling four ginormous flags. <laughs> And they're going to sit there and shake them. So the, all these flags are going and you're going to be in the middle of all four of them <laughs> on a platform, which is just a big G, you know, and there's going to be a camera right in front of you right here. <laughs> and I was like, can you like not shoot me from below? That'd be great. Cause you know, no, it's not flattering for anybody. Um, they don't tell you that stuff. They just, they, you just go in and do it. And that can be really nerve wracking. And so I can understand where people can forget the words and everything when you've got all that stuff flying oh, at sure, you. Yeah. But I think I'm at an advantage being an opera singer where, you know, you have, that's my job is to yeah. jump in and do stuff, you know, with yeah. the costume and where's the conductor and, you know, where's my soprano? How do I get off the door? You know, all this stuff, you know, you've got to learn how to do that on the fly. And so it's, I think it, I'm at an advantage so that I didn't have to like, you know, worry about all that stuff. <laughs> it, it is a job for some, obviously you're on the faculty. Paul, you have your own career as a singer, but my understanding is that for some of these positions, like for the Blackhawks, perhaps, or the Bulls, this is a gig. This is like, that's what you do, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they get paid for it or anything like that. But I know um, Jim Cornelison, um, you know, that's his gig. And he does it. And he's great at it. I mean, no. Baritone uh, John Brancy also recently sang the national anthem for the Rangers. We'll play a clip of that.
John Bramsey's incredible, but listen to that nasty crowd at Madison Square Gardens <laughs> with this guy's this guy's singing the the anthem. Uh, Scott, I'm going to ask you in a, in a second who's going to win the Super Bowl. But first, give us a give us a pro tip for one of those future anthem singers. What's one for when for when they call on George to go sing the anthem? What does he do? Right. Do not want to hear that. Right. Um, <laughs> pro tip is um, no. Where your where your range lies, I mean, no, don't start too low. Um, otherwise, it's going to be like boring. Um, but don't start too high. <laughs> you got to find that sweet spot. You know, for me, it's A major. Um, you know, I, I know right where that is. And go with either a pitch pipe or something in your pocket, like a like a piano keyboard on your phone. You you could have seen me beforehand. Literally, I had my phone up, and I was like trying to play an A and <laughs> and do it at the same time. And I and they've got all of this music going while you're doing it. So I'm like, rhythm as a dancer is an A. Wow, that's cool. You know what? I, you know, it was like all these music that they were playing was. I was like, okay, I can find that note in there. Um, and then they would play some rap song, and I was like, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, I need it again. So find your key. Um, of course, know the words and be prepared for cold weather. That's the biggest issue. Uh, the day that I sang, it was cold out. It was cold. It was probably like 17 to 20, 25 degrees. It was cold. And uh, <laughs> they don't and, call it the frozen tundra for nothing, man. Right. Well, the other two times I'd done it was gorgeous outside. It was really, really nice. But it was cold that day and, and not fun. Let <laughs> me get to your long. prediction in one second. As you might know, there's a lot of prop bets that are taken on the Super Bowl. Uh, famously for the national anthem itself, you can take a bet on what color the singer is going to wear and how long the anthem is going to be. The range has been everywhere <laughs> between uh, 90 seconds flat, which was Billy Joel back in 2007. Really? Interesting. Mm-hmm, to uh, the record long two minutes and 36 seconds by Alicia Keys. <laughs> what a range. What a good performance, too. The, the over-under wow. for this Super Bowl is 95 seconds. I'm trying to figure out if, if, if I would go over or under on a 95-second anthem. I would go over. I, that, that, that's, my, yeah. that's my bet, yeah. Especially for the Super Bowl. I mean, uh, do we even know who's singing it this year? Yes, we do. Mickey Guyton, who's a country-western star, she is singing the anthem. Okay. Over. Over. I don't know. I don't know. I think I think that she'll keep it straightforward being a country western singer. I mean, if it were if it were somebody that was going to use like a big background track, a big backing track, I would say over definitely. But I mean, usually it's a minute. A minute, two minute, 30. This guy's given inside pro tips on on betting now. I love it. (laughs) I would go over. I think I go over on that as well. Super Bowl 56. The Rams in L.A. against the upstart Cincinnati Bengals. Scott, give us your prediction. I'm going to predict the Rams' home field advantage. Yeah, and you, you, it looks like you're saying this through gritted teeth. Very much so. <laughs> I have I have a very dear uh, dear friend. I have lots of friends that live in L.A., obviously. Um, my niece actually lives in L.A. And I have a dear friend who's an avid um, Rams fan, and I give her the business all the time. Um before the game, after the game, I, I let her be a piece because, you know, I've been there, done that. That's not fun when your team is lost um, and you're just in a bad mood for a couple of days. But um, I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to root them on for her. All right. Scott Ramsey's a tenor. He 
is on the faculty at DePaul University, national anthem singer, independent opera crafter and maker and singer. So great to have you back on the show, Scott. Thanks for having me. And uh, hey, man, here's to next season for the pack. I I don't know if I can wish you all the best, but um... (laughs) I appreciate it. I appreciate the positive thoughts. Thanks again to Scott Ramsey for joining us on the show. A little bit of sports talk. First of all, let's get the Super Bowl 56 predictions out of the way. The Los Angeles Rams and the Cincinnati Bengals, they're playing in Los Angeles. I'm going to put my money out there. This is not a a crazy pick. I, I think the Rams are going to win. The last time I saw the the line was four points. My guess is is that they will beat that. I think they'll beat the Bengals by around a touchdown. Oliver Camacho, who's going to win? Rams or well, Rams? my prediction is based on opera. Um, the quarterback Joe Burrow is that his name? Mm-hmm. Joe Joseph Lee Burrow. Uh, by the way, very handsome. Uh, and as always, you know, white as the day is long. But you he know, is. he shares a name. With somebody who was in the two-minute drill today, one of my favorite singers is actually celebrating a birthday um, today. So I'm going to go with my heart with beautiful white guys whose names <laughs> are similar to some of my favorite tenors, Joe Burrow. This is this is, okay. I That's think a I good strategy, that. right? You it's know, not a bad one. Not a bad yeah. one. Weston Williams, who's it going to be? Rams, Bengals. Uh, well, I don't know too much about football, George, but the one thing I do know about football is Roll Tide. Moving on to the That's when people mail. throw their phone at the wall <laughs> <laughs> when you say that. Honestly, it's like, uh, for the love of God, when is he going to stop saying Roll Tide? You know, it's the Olympics. It's behavior like that that, that prevents people from writing in. But we do have two correspondents in the listener <laughs> mailbag this week. First of all, Miyusha in New York City writes, I saw The Hang at the Here Arts Center. In New York, I decided to see it because it was one of the hyped pieces of the Prototype Festival. And although that festival got canceled, The Hang remained to go on stage. It's a rare piece. It's very queer. It's very experimental. Taylor Mack wrote the book. It plays like a mermaid Socrates in high heels surrounded by gender fluid surrealistic fairies in drag. Visually, it's stunning. Costumes are otherworldly and timely. Orchestra members choreographed into the show lovely and entertaining. She says, my question, the OBS team, is this, why is the hang advertised as being rooted, quote, in the operatic form? Don't all musical theater pieces have their roots in the operatic form? Weston, let's start with you. The advertising says that the hang is rooted in the jazz tradition in the operatic form. What gives? Well, I think that that's actually a very interesting question about like the nature. You you see a lot, especially nowadays, of a lot of like uh, more uh, more specifically genre blending pieces out there. You see lots more. And I I think you've done some like stuff, George, as well uh, in your personal directing career, combining hip hop and opera and things like that. Um, I do think it's it's very interesting, though, because this trend goes back at least to the 20, uh, beginning of the 20th century and possibly before that, where you're trying to distinguish whatever it is you're doing from opera. But sometimes you'll be interested to hear, like, what kind of uh, operas received labels that were not operas back, back in their day. The big mm-hmm. example in my mind is um, Le Grand Macabre which the uh, the composer uh, referred to as an anti-opera. And a lot of experimental mid-century operas actually were called 
anti-operas at the time because they were breaking some sort of convention uh, or they wanted to break some sort of convention that they felt was associated with the older art form of opera. Um, but I think it's kind of similar now because, you know, in 20 years, uh, 20 years after Le Grand Macabre, it just became an opera. You know, that's how people think of it. Uh, going back to Wagner, even, you know, he referred to his operas as music dramas, but we they're, they're operas, right? You know, and it, it's, it's interesting because I think it really shows how fluid um, as a genre opera can be and what and, and it really says a lot about the person putting it on when they try to distinguish it from uh, distinguish it from whatever the mainstream happens to be at the time, which can make things a little complicated historically, but also very interesting in my mind to well, see what was important to people. You know, today. Taylor Mac is the, the idea of an anti-opera is right up Taylor Mac's alley. Oliver. Exactly. Well, clearly in the operatic this, form. Is that, clearly is that a pejorative piece, or a compliment? This piece is not trying to be what we think of classically opera to be, I think by design. But I think it's coming, you know, it's like becoming so meta, the idea of using the word opera, because <laughs> there was a time where saying something was an opera would give it some kind of cash, some kind of like, you know, erudite Well, it leads quality. to the old adage that I, I, at least I say, it's like, if something has opera in the title, usually it's not an opera, you know, Phantom yeah. of the Opera, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, fast forward. So we talk about like Tommy, the rock opera and fast forward to the 2008 uh, Repo, the genetic opera, which starred yeah, Paris yeah. Hilton, you know, and, you know, somebody like Stephen Sondheim famously saying that his works were in operas when yeah. they are They're performed at performed. opera houses. <laughs> so the words so, opera. So right, mainly like, it's, just, it's just to confuse you at this point. So. I, I mean, basically, does it bring cachet and class to the piece or is it a pejorative, which is basically saying this is elitist and is going to be completely boring in a foreign language? Like you decide. To to me, I don't think I would ever want to use this as a marketing tool to try and entice people. I I think it's too loaded at this point. That said, knowing Taylor Mac's work, this is just the sort of thing that Taylor Mac would want to do. It sounds amazing. Throw curveballs and surprise mm -hmm. and give you left turns and right turns when you're least expecting it. Nisha gets uh, opera box score, beer mat, and uh, lapel pin as well. Congratulations. Long time listener, Kenny <laughs> in Flint, Michigan. Kenny in Flint, Michigan writes, I have some time on my hands, so I did a little digging on James Levine's status with his labels. Both Deutsche Grammophon and Sony slash RCA have dropped all mention of Levine from their websites, and they don't list any available product it's going to be interesting to see if his artistic reputation comes back as the notoriety fades with the passage of time mm -hmm. so hard to uh, get your hands on these levine recordings what, what's going to happen oliver this i mean i don't think it's hard to get your hands on these recordings because nobody's really buying recordings these days people who <laughs> own james levine's recordings have james levine's recordings and it's it's really sad right now because I work in radio, as some of you know, and there are so many great performances of artists that I really cherish that I have to be very careful to play or don't play them at all because of James Levine's participation yeah, in them. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to wait until his victims uh, have passed away. I mean, I think that there's too many victims wow. right now who would be who would be triggered by hearing James Levine's recordings or hearing that name. And we have to respect that. And I think, yeah. like, you know, ultimately this man was a monster. 
And uh, it's too soon. It's way too soon to be, you know, celebrating his work right now. I mean, yes, we celebrate, we separate the art from the man, but right now they're still too connected. And um, yeah, it's it's triggering to hear. That there name. is one good use for a James Levine recording. And, and here in the studio, what I do is I use this, this um, you can see it, it's a box set of the DVD, of two <laughs> not DVDs, VHS tapes. Let me get it here. James Levine, I use it to prop up my... Uh, that's Berlioz's Les Troyens for those of you listening to the podcast on DVD. <laughs> Thanks for writing in, Kenny. You're also going to get a beer coaster and OBS merch Doesn't from us. Doesn't he have us. one already? Okay. You, too, can get your voice on the show or your email on the show. You can you can actually get your voice. Memo. You can send us a, vo- a voice memo. We'll oh, absolutely. Please do. Gmail.com. Two Minute Trail is coming up right now. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything that you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The Wiener Staatsoper has named conductor Simone Young an honorary member of the house, presenting her with the Ring of Honor. Along with Young, Jonas Kaufmann and Sir Brin Terfel were named Kammerzangers in a brief ceremony following their performance in Peter Grimes. Wait, wait. Peter Grimes? That should have been the lead. Jonas Kaufman, Peter Grimes? <laughs> it's great. Yannick Nézé-Séguin was featured on the Kelly Clarkson show last week. The Met Music director promoted the music of Florence Price in honor of Black History Month. During the segment, he spoke about the pioneering composer and the Grammy-nominated album of her symphonies he recorded with the Philadelphia Orchestra. In an update to last week's drill, a critic for The Guardian wrote about the new production of Theodore at Covent Garden saying, quote, Notoriety clung to Katie Mitchell's staging well before opening night, thanks to trigger warnings about explicit violence and the much-reported employment of intimacy coordinator Ita O'Brien to ensure the performers felt comfortable with the sex scenes. But the production is for the most part a reined-in affair, and neither particularly explicit, either sexually or in its depiction of violence, nor quite as inflammatory as anticipated. A TV drama series inspired by the real-life exploits of notorious French opera singer Julie Maupin, also known as Julie Daubigny, is in development. Set around Louis XIV's Palace of Versailles, Diva tells of an impoverished servant in 17th century France who battles rogues and royalty in her quest to conquer the stage, finding fame, fortune, and love along the way. No word yet on if it will be picked up by the same streamer that gave us that other explicit French drama, Emily in Paris. <laughs> in trade news, Opera Theatre of St. Louis has announced the appointment of Daniela Candelari as its first principal conductor. The organization also extended the contracts of artistic director James Robinson and young artist program AD and friend of the show, Patricia Reset through 2026. Marie Jacot has been appointed music director of the Royal Danish Opera. Her five-year tenure kicks off in 2024. The 31-year-old conductor will succeed Alexander Verdernikov, who served as director until 2020 when he died of COVID. The AGMA Board of Governors has announced Sam Wheeler as the union's new national executive director, succeeding former national executive director Leonard Egert, who served in the role from 2016 until January of this year. In COVID cancellation news, the Cologne Opera has decided to postpone their production of Bernd Zimmermann's Die Soldaten. Sorry, Weston. Yeah. Exit stage right. The Constanza National Opera House has announced the death of ensemble member 
Smaranda Zarigichi Paslaru at 35 from breast cancer. In a statement, the House said, Smaranda was the friend that anyone would want. She was the artist that any theater in the world would need. Avant-garde composer George Crumb has died at the age of 92. While not an opera composer, his experimental use of instrumental timbre and electronics was incredibly influential in opera and classical music as a whole. His is a unique voice that will be missed by people like me. Stage director Hans Neuenfels has died at 80. He led productions at the Salzburg Festival, Deutsche Oper Berlin, and the Bayreuth Festival, where his staging of Lohengrin set the opera in a science laboratory with the chorus members dressed as lab rats. His is a unique voice that will be missed by people like me. <laughs> and on this day, February 7th, in 1662, it was the first performance of Cavalli's Ercole Amante in Paris. In 1758, jumping about a century, it was the birth of tenor and composer Benedict Schock who created the role of Tamino in The Magic Flute. Mm. In more Mozart-related news, in 1786, it was the first performance of the Zingspiel, The Impresario. In 1792, Domenico Cimarosa's opera Il Matrimonio Segreto premiered in Vienna. In 1871, another hundred years, birth of tenor Hermann Schramm, who sang in a number of premieres, including Humperdinck's Dornröschen, Delius's Fenimore and Gerda, and some of Weston's favorite operas, Der Sprung <laughs> über den Schatten by Kranich, and Der Schatzgräber by, Schatzgräber by Schrecker. In 1889, Italian soprano Claudio Muzio was born, among other things. She created the role of Giorgetta in Il Tabarro. Mm. In 1927, it was the birth of Brazilian baritone Paula Fortes, who created roles in operas by Eto Villalobos and Francisco Mignone. In 1931, Joseph Deems Taylor's opera, Peter Ibbotson, had its premiere at the Met. And we say happy birthday to Welsh tenor Stuart Burroughs, born this day in 1933, Go Bengals. Is that what I Bengals, yeah. Uh, in 1939, uh, the birth of baritone, English baritone Norman Wellsby, who created roles in operas by Henze and sang in the premiere of Delice's The Magic Fountain. And happy birthday to podcaster, soprano, and all-around great gal, Ashley Hardgrave, <laughs> born this day, February 7th, in 19... <laughs> <laughs> happy birthday, Ashley. That's your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of the sweet, sweet voice of Stuart Burroughs with pianist John Constable getting you ready for Valentine Valentine's Day. Well, Valentine's Day, uh, but also St. Patrick's Day next month. Yeah. Again, the candy uh, hearts, the candy hearts are calling. It's listener appreciation <laughs> week on the OBS. Again, send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes, opera box score, gmail.com. Get that merch, get that swag, get that Jonas Kaufman as Peter Grimes. Why are we not talking about <laughs> Jonas Kaufman singing Peter Grimes? Is this his first role in English? 
Ah, uh, I don't think so. Well, I mean, a lot of his recordings are uh, are in English, more the pop well, stuff. Apart from that but, Christmas yeah. album, I guess. Uh... <laughs> the Mariah Carey. All I want yeah. for Christmas is you. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't mind uh, somebody with his voice. I think he has actually the perfect voice for He really, really does. And it never, I never put two and two together. I should have said, you know what? Let's hear him sing Peter Grimes. And now I'm so jealous of those people that got to see that. That sounds like a fantastic I, I had the exact same see. reaction. I, I, he's with really Lisa Davidson it. as Ellen Orford. You know. It is such a wild yeah. cast, but like an amazing cast. I, yeah. I would love to see it. What is the ring of honor? Like this sounds so incredibly Austrian. I, I think I'm, I think it's the Der Ring des Nibelungen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the one ring to uh, heal them all. What is well, it? To, to rule, to rule them all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, yeah. Hey, it's like a Super Bowl ring, I guess, right? You know? yeah. Oh, there's the connection. Yeah. We found it. Yeah. Good for you, George. Okay. Well, talk about the throwback. So the production of uh, Handel's Theater opens at Covent Garden. It opened at Covent Garden, and apparently yes. it wasn't sexy enough. So maybe this intimacy coordinator <laughs> overcoordinated the intimacy. Um, we just and like, want what is she, here's the thing. Here's okay. this is the this is the shame about this that like I think people were very anxious to see Jakob Josef Erlinski naked. That's what they wanted. It's like okay, they brought in somebody to like deal with his nudity so that we can enjoy it properly, you know. But maybe he wasn't naked, which is a shame because that man should be naked all the time. So. Look, I mean, so I was able to find Friend some of the production. show, Jakob Josvorlinski. I looked at some production <laughs> Thank photos. You for clarifying. So there's a, there is a sequence. Theodora works in a brothel, I think it is. And so there is a, a yes. sequence where she's surrounded by, by strippers. Let me just say that this ties into Die Soldaten. When I saw Die Soldaten. Oh, I just at, drank. At, at, well, it was actually it was at ENO, English National Opera, but there were strippers in that production. I think that was the first time I ever saw a woman naked, actually. You know, when I was in high school, a we went formative to see moment this for you. production. I just, I, I remember it, but this never ends well. The sort of hype about, you know, um, sexually explicit or depiction of violence. We're going to put a rating on this. We're going to prevent people under 16 to come to the opera. It, it, it never works. That, to be well, serious, I, I, though, I, 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 go on. Yeah. I was, I was just going to say, I think this is, you know, uh, I mean, I've been, you know, as an actor, I've had a, I had a similar situation once where the show was advertised as uh, very explicit, and it, and it was like, you know, for for the actors, it was like it required a lot of vulnerability, a lot of like putting yourself out there. Um, but the general sort of consensus from the audience was very much like that. That we see worse things on HBO all the time, right? Um, and I, I do think that there is a, a in general a positive movement. Uh, happening right now to get people to sort of consider the media they're watching and like maybe why when they see like incredibly explicit violence or sex, why it's not so shocking. Right. Uh, and I think that this is kind of a, a and and making sure that the actors are actually comfortable and able and like completely consenting to do these kinds of things, I think is an important story in itself. But I feel like a lot of people kind of took the fact that uh, the fact that there was an intimacy coordinator there to mean that it was going to be like super sexy. And that really wasn't what the story was. And I think a lot of people need to sort of maybe reflect on themselves a little bit and say, why was that a Oliver, why were why you was that the story? trying to see Oliver specifically. <laughs> cakes? Um, no, but I just want to say it's on a serious note that like, yes, I know that there are parents out there that are like fighting the good fight and trying to, you know, protect their children from uh, that type of graphic, explicit 
you know, violence and sex that's on TV and whatnot and in media. And I also have a friend who um, doesn't watch uh, popular culture, doesn't watch TV or go to movies. And okay, so man, her... I get it. You can just say my name. It's okay. No, and her, <laughs> and her entertainment is really classical music and the opera. And yeah. she's always really upset when, you know, in uh, Die Valkyrie, you know, when Zieglinde gets raped by... Zygmunt, you know, like there are things that's like, we don't need to see this. Like, you know, that you, this is not why people come to the opera to see this, you know? Well, so. then don't recommend the Diva TV show. Oh, well, absolutely. Watch it anyway, so that's, <laughs> I'm actually that very excited. excited about it. Oh, yeah. So the, the, the wild thing, I mean, obviously this, this show is very, very much in development. If you don't know the big hook for this show, this uh, this singer, Julie Dauvigny, Do- I can't do the yeah, French. Dauvigny, oui. Dauvigny, uh, she was a, a fencer. She got into duels. She, uh, she uh, was um, uh, sexual with, uh, openly uh, sexual with uh, all genders that kind of came her way, uh, very much in a time where that wasn't as, you know, that wasn't as talked about. Uh, she was, uh, of course, an opera singer, very, very flamboyant uh, uh, life. But the reason I think that the fact that this TV show is now in development is very, very, very funny to me because I know I would be willing to bet money that the reason people are writing this show is because of a Tumblr post that came out maybe in 2011. And I feel like I am outing myself as a Tumblr blog haver in around 2011. But there was a very, very popular post that was like, passing around like the most sordid details of her life and people were like i would watch the 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 heck out of this uh, i'm ble- not so i don't have to bleep myself uh like describing the entire life and this like you know started on opera tumblr and then went around to the rest of tumblr and i know too much about that but i just think it's so funny that a tumblr post from about you know over 10 years ago is on its way to becoming an actual show <laughs> and i'm so excited to watch it <laughs> That's that's a crazy story. That's a real throwback. Yeah, it is. Hans Neuenfels has died at 80. There are probably few directors of uh, the certainly 80s and 90s, maybe the 2000s, as important as Hans yeah. Neuenfels. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy was just so darn smart. He actually read or studied poetry and writing. And then moved into directing. He ran the Volksbühne, the experimental theater in Berlin, uh, before reunification at the end of the 80s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And his work was nothing short of extraordinary. If you know the production of Lohengrin from Bayreuth when the chorus is dressed up in lab rats. Uh, If you know the production of Così Fan Tutte that he did in Salzburg, which has sadomasochism in it you know tasteful trashy euro trash regie theater these are words that are thrown around a lot by people who don't actually know what they mean right (laughs) that was not hans neuenfels hans neuenfels was a smart guy who was very deliberate who did everything intentionally well researched and it always meant something and there was a huge vacuum that I believe has now been left with his death. You know what's funny though? I mean, like, no, thank you for for giving us more information about Hans Neuenfels. But uh, you are always very quick to like 
make your judgment on things you've never seen and also lavish praise on the things that you have. So um, yeah, I'm <laughs> so not sure. pay me the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> just, before we wrap this up, I wanted to just shout out Daniela Candelari, who was in Chicago uh, conducting um, fellow travelers, which is a show that I adored that was a great so show, yeah. much. And then she went on to make her debut at the Met uh, in Matthew Coyne's Eurydice. And uh, she is scheduled to return to Chicago to conduct Fire Shut Up in My Bones. So, um, oh, you know, man, all of it's the great. Hits. I know it's great that like a conductor who I don't know if that's their specialty, but like who has made her bones doing these new operas uh, is getting, you know, a permanent gig uh, at an opera company that is a friend of the show. Um, we love when people who do work to diversify the repertoire uh, are recognized for that. And it's not mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. like these, you know, white guys who conduct, you know, Strauss and Wagner and Mozart and Puccini who keep getting promoted, you know? Yeah. Let's let's wrap the show up with that. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Oliver, that was almost a good call. That doesn't have to count as your good call. <laughs> but it was close. <laughs> Give us another one, Oliver. You know, Lyric Opera Chicago has has had a great week. Today is Monday, and last week I went to see uh, the Rising Stars concert conducted by Enrique Mazzola and directed so skillfully and with so much whimsy by Christine McIntyre, who I'd never heard of before, but she did a great job. Uh, Then on Sunday, yesterday for me, uh, a concert, Russell Thomas and Tamara Wilson, two friends of the show, singing the hardest Verdi arias and the hardest Verdi duets, <laughs> like back to back, like two hours of just like throat busting Verdi. Yeah. I, I couldn't go, but I but I saw the picture you posted of the program. I was like, oh God, are they <laughs> you know, okay? Like, your, voice, your, your throat hurts just looking at the program. I was like, ouch, you know. Uh, and then earlier in the week, I was invited to the press junket for the season announcement for 2022-23. And we didn't have time in this episode to dive into that, but we will next week. And it's a fantastic season. I cannot mm-hmm. wait to talk about mm-hmm. it. Ashley also threw in a good call, the greatest hits of opera. That was the playlist during the Parade of Nations at the Olympic opening. It was very much sort of top 40 classical, just kind of on a loop forever, which I think is very charming. Just the most bombastic moments of every symphony in opera. Amazing, amazing stuff. Hilarious. I do. I got a great call actually this week. Um, My son got cast in the middle school musical. This is the the first role he's ever played. And yes, he will be Jack in Into the Woods Junior. Amazing. Coming in June, I think it is. So, you know, get your tickets now, folks. Noel Coward said, please, Mrs. Worthington, don't put your daughter on the stage. But it's far too late from that. So uh, (laughs) the, uh, the family lineage continues. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell, normwaddell.com. If you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Get that full show. Stitcher and Spotify, you click follow. Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. Send a voice memo or email us your hot takes, box for at gmail.com. You're going to get a beer coaster, a lapel pin for sharing your hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Scott Ramsey, 
I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about operas. Do you digest all those halftime show nachos? Mm-hmm. We're back with an all-new show next week. We take a deep dive into lyric opera of Chicago's 22-23 season, and we go inside the huddle with Ryan Opera Center soprano Matilda Edge. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more gender-fluid, surrealistic fairies in drag. Amazing. Join us. Join us.